Welcome to The Real, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. I'm one of your hosts, Michael, and I'm going to take you guys on a voyage. Uh, this week I am joined by my co-host and friend and the man that is going to join you all on this uh, wonderful voyage into the world of stop motion, Jesse. How you doing, Jesse? I'm good, man. I... Uh... Did no research whatsoever about this ahead of time, and I don't know the name off the top of my head for our topic tonight. So, I, I'm with the audience, man. I don't know. <laughs> Wonderful, um, just like how I like it, just completely naive. Yeah, um, yeah, completely in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, though, before we jump into the full topic of the episode, uh, I'm going to let you take it to this point, um, just so we can do one of the less the less fun parts of doing podcasts like this, and especially stuff that we talk about, um, if you wouldn't mind doing this section for us, Jesse. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, um around May 22nd, 2022, uh, Ray Liotta tragically passed away at the age of 67 in his sleep. Um, so I guess at least he went peacefully. But uh, yeah, um, he was a pretty famous actor in the 80s and the 90s. And I think found some pretty unique ways to maintain his career and branch out a little bit. Um, he, of course, is probably most known for being in Field of Dreams as Shoeless Joe Jackson and, of course, uh, Goodfellas as Henry Hill, the main character and who uh, the story was adapted from. Um, but he was, I mean, he has a pretty long body of work, so people probably know him from all sorts of things. Um, and then... I would also say he had a pretty good outlook on, you know, trying not to pigeonhole himself, I guess, into one thing or even being willing to not just do the same thing all the time or I think pretty unique outlook. And I admired his willingness to go into other genres and try different things because he could have just been in you know, mob movies for the rest of his career after he did Goodfellas. But uh, he had this quote where he said, you want to do as many different genres as you can. And that's what I've been doing. I've done movies with the Muppets. I did Sinatra. I did good guys and bad guys. I did a movie with an elephant. I decided that I was here to try different parts and do different things. That's what it's really all about. That's what a career should be. So we want to just pay quick tribute to him and Michael, I, I'm sure you know him very well from Goodfellas, but was there any other points or any other things that he did or was part of that left an impression on you? I think uh, Field of Dreams is also another really big one that I think is solid performance from him and uh, uh, another one of those like moments a sticking moment in time for him. Uh, I do remember uh, Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I, I remember going to see that in the movie theaters with my parents and stuff. Um, sure. <laughs> so I, a man that did a lot of iconic roles and I think was able to really just consistently find himself in interesting projects <laughs> as he went through his career. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I, of course, also know him from Goodfellas. Feel of Dreams was a staple in my household growing up. Um, those movies came out in consecutive years, so I mean that's that's a hell of a hell of a run that he had there in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, I would also say I knew him well from the movie Smoke and Aces, um, which he starred alongside Ryan Reynolds and uh, some other guys, <laughs> which I haven't seen for a while. And I really liked it back in the day. I have a feeling if I watched it again, it might not hold up as well, but you know, who knows? Um, but I also think, dude, a lot of 
people from our generation probably know him pretty well from uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City because he was Tommy Bursetti in that game. Yeah. <laughs> so he found different ways to um, to keep his career going, and I think you know, probably probably came across uh, your screen uh, in one form or another at some point uh, in your life. So, uh, yeah, it's my least favorite subject, but I you know, wanted to give the man his flowers uh, before we got, you know, too much. I have too much more time passed since his death. So, yeah. All right. So on that joyful note, uh, Michael, it's your show, dude. Yeah. Uh, so this week I wanted to um, celebrate a little bit early. Uh, we're always, we always struggle getting birthday episodes out um, <laughs> either way too soon or way too late. Um, but I really wanted to celebrate a man that I would describe as probably one of the arguably one of the most influential artists in uh, American cinema that's subsequently defined pretty much all of our modern day movie uh, structure just based on what he was doing and the ability to inspire and uh, develop a particular vision. Um, we'll get into that particular, that's just a little prelude, but I wanted to talk a little bit about it and the audience members that might be aware of uh, what topic, uh, the stop motion I referenced earlier, uh, might, might be able to get a little bit ahead of us here and know who I'm talking about. But I thought I would like to... But what I'd like to do, though, is first talk a little bit about stop motion animation in itself, just to kind of give a little bit of history, a backstory, uh, some base to build upon and kind of move forward from there. So, OK, OK, uh, I, I, it's, it's a little different. I know we usually jump right into the topic, but I just wanted to touch on this just a little bit uh, because I think stop motion has always had this kind of weird relationship with uh cinema and this guy we're going to talk about uh really changed kind of how people viewed it and how it was utilized and what it led to so the very first uh allegedly and again i always say these things because in the research i do it's hard to always definitively say certain things just because sometimes people go like oh well what about this thing that like you know I joked previously on some another podcast about like, oh, I, I like this is the first one, but someone's going to come back and say like, you know, oh, well, you didn't know about this obscure German uh, short film that was done. Um, and that therefore that was actually done like two years before this other thing. So that was actually the first. So uh -huh. in the research I was able to do and find uh, the history of stop motion um, began very first cinematic short or short film. Uh, in 1898 called the Humpty Dumpty Circus. Uh, and those that don't know what stop motion is, uh, stop motion is when they you take a model, clay figure, a rubber figure, an articulated model, like an action figure or doll, and slowly, painstakingly, I can't stress this enough, take uh, a single shot, so a single photo of that model moving. And to give it full fluid motion, you have to take a lot of sequential shots, right? Like you do, like a camera does when you're filming something. It takes sequential shots. They're all just single images, but it takes sequential shots to give you that look of motion when you play it back. So stop motion, people were doing these types of things. We're saying, well, well, the, uh, we've already had pictures and we we're taking single shots of people. And then someone put together the you know film and it was something so simple as the the old spinning uh wheels you've probably seen them in movies and stuff uh where someone like spins a little wheel and you see like a horse galloping that's the idea of a stop motion where you just take a bunch of small photos and you play it in such a way that it makes it look like it's moving to the human eye 
because that's how we receive the information. The first movie, the short film, uh, unfortunately, the Humpty Dumpty Circus, there is no living media of it whatsoever. It is lost to time. Uh, there's no stills from it. There's no film. There's nothing. All we know is that it happened and that it was stop motion because it was done with um, dolls. and They did like acrobatics and stuff like that. Okay. So that's the very first one, 1898. Uh, then we kind of move forward uh, with some other um, stop motion. A lot of the time used for children's stuff. Uh, a lot of the times used for um, kind of uh, either very childish kind of uh, retellings of old fables, uh, nursery rhymes, uh, fairy tales, that type of stuff. Or it was used in a very artistic kind of um, almost sometimes disturbing uh, imagery type ways because you could get away with doing a little bit more from that. Uh, one of the very uh, prominent people that was doing these types of things, and I'm going to butcher his name because he was a uh, uh, Polish-Russian uh, animator, uh, Ladislas Starvich, Ladislas Starvich, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, he was one of the earliest adopters of this and did a lot of different things where he actually used, um, bug, like bug shells and, uh, feathers and naturally found items to make these kind of more mythical and fairy-esque creatures for his stop motion. He okay. kind of started with that. And then the very first and probably largest well-known stop motion usage in a movie um, was The Lost World, not to be confused with the <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, um, which came and out. In... Sadly, probably the last Jurassic Park that was kind of any good. I would even argue, I would even argue not even that good. <laughs> I, I but... said kind of. <laughs> um but that was used to make uh they did dinosaurs they did uh uh puppets kind of or like a little like figures and they made uh, it was like a whole thing about dinosaurs and things and so that was one of the, the very first like major motion pictures but the ones that really and the, where our story truly begins is 1933's king kong um, this is the iconic stop motion movie that wowed the world. Uh, this was the first time that people like really got to experience the story. This giant ape taking over Manhattan and all this stuff, capturing uh, the woman. It was the very first time. And it was impressive because they had the giant monster on screen with actors. And to the human eye, it looked like this giant ape was truly interacting with the humans on the screen and so it just blew people's minds and it particularly in captivated and inspired one young gentleman and the man that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the podcast one young at the time ray harryhausen so he saw this movie in 1933 and fell in love with it and wanted to know more about it and just was completely fixated on how to get to, to do that, to be able to do it. Because at the time, uh, one thing to keep in mind, Jesse, is I t I've talked about uh, looking up behind the scenes stuff. They show that in on YouTube. They show it on Netflix. It, they even make entire specials about how they do these types of uh, CGI and special effects nowadays, right? There's an entire industry around telling people about this. Well, over a hundred years ago now, they <laughs> didn't really do that. That wasn't part of the thing because it was such a coveted secret because you were trying to make better films than other people. So right. you would try to keep your little secrets uh, tucked away so no one else could use them and uh, get on get in on the movies uh, same type of movies you were making because that was the awe of the spectacle right so they spent some time Harry young Harry Housen spent time trying to figure this out uh, eventually quite some time afterwards 
they did release some stuff about how uh, King Kong was done. And it was talked about as a small stop motion model moved and then using overlays of screens and projection, they were able to put him into the movie with the rest of the characters now. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, you're probably thinking like, okay, this doesn't like, wh why is this so, why is this so revolutionary? Why was this so crazy? Why did this lead to this young man redefine, like essentially defining and pushing forward all of our other movies that we know today? I'm actually just waiting for you to drop the bomb on me. So, <laughs> so Ray Harryhausen saw this movie. He wanted to learn how to do it. He slowly spent time working towards it, building up this his own miniatures developing them his father uh worked in the kind of the movie industry and ray was spent time in in his own house in his own garage building little dinosaurs he even used uh in an interview i saw that he talked about one of the very first models he made he made um a, a brontosaurus i think it was uh but a long neck dinosaur and he used like one of those lamps that has like the metal bendy bits like the you kind of kind of grab and then move around that has that metal neck and he wrapped clay around it and used that so he could position his dinosaur and stop motion is such a detail oriented thing because if you move a character too fast if you jump between two frames it can make the motions look very jerky and fluid movement is something the human eye can tell is when you look at something probably if you've ever played a video game and you see somebody glitch out and like move quickly or like jump around you know that doesn't look natural but if you watch somebody run across the screen and there's no lag or anything else like that and they just one fluid motion you your body or your mind associates that with the correct movement so that's the part of stop motion and they were doing this type of stuff before digital cameras. Okay. So when they would take a picture, they had to make sure that the next picture in that frame was the correct one. They couldn't go back and re-erase it because they were literally shooting onto film again. They yeah. were re-exposing the film so they could insert these models into place. Yeah, so was, we're talking no now, fancy video editor. Yeah, no fancy video editor. No, like, oh, let's take a picture of this. Oh, that let's take a look and look. We'll just jog between these two photos you know, on this digital screen. Oh, that doesn't look right. Let's add another frame in there. These guys were doing it and Ray was doing it. Painstakingly by themselves in uh, studios second by second frame by frame click by click and moving these models through this area so uh he got his first real job uh, oh he, he you know he served during world war ii uh he grew up in la went to the los angeles college uh just kind of kept his artistic spirit going uh was very interested in science fiction uh loved myth and mythologies um, all that type of stuff. And so uh, after World War II, he was hired on because he kind of had some of these really cool models that he was doing uh, onto one movie as the uh, first technical super uh, supervisor, uh, special effects supervisor. Um, then the movie was called Mighty Joe Young, uh, not to be confused with the much later remake of Mighty Joe Young uh, that I that he actually cameoed in um oh that's pretty cool yeah so uh and, the, and speaking of uh the uh giant animals and uh the kind of weird childhood movies i think mighty joe young came out i feel like around the same time as uh dumbo drop <laughs> oh well there you go We've yeah circle well yeah tying it in so yeah on the movie mighty joe young uh the lead animator the guy that hired on ray who you could considered to be the grandfather or the great-grandfather and if you feel that ray is either the grandfather or the father of um stop motion your choice on that 
uh, Willis O'Brien uh, was the ha- had kind of done some of this other stuff. He had worked on uh, the Lost World, uh, which I talked about previously. We just talked about here a little bit ago uh, with dinosaurs and things like that. So he he knew how to do these. He was doing monster movies, that type of stuff, uh, as they were known. And he brought Ray on because he kind of knew his father and really liked his work because Ray had showed him what he had done in his garage and he was very impressed by it. So he brought him on to do Mighty Joe and uh, it's confl- it sounds conflicting and I don't want to give, uh, I don't want to like discount what uh, O'Brien had done, uh, but it sounds like maybe Ray took a little bit on, a little bit more on than uh, O'Brien had done previously. And you can really start seeing in this movie everything change about the stop motion industry when it came to Ray Harryhausen's monsters and creatures before they were lit. They were kind of clunky and moved weird. Uh, even though they did look natural, they just didn't have the same heart and fluidity of motion that Ray was able to get out of every one of his creations. And Mighty Joe actually is kind of more of it, whereas King Kong, the movie that's got him inspired by this, uh, Mighty Joe was a little bit more, if you remember the, the remake, uh, is a little bit more of a sympathetic character. He's not like the size of King Kong. He's just a very large gorilla and is just kind of another one of those stories of showcasing that man is the true monster, is the true beast of the world. Um, so that was Ray's kind of first foray into movies uh, in the professional setting. And then Ray starts just, he had such an interesting way of going about it. Okay. Um, Jesse. Yes. What kind of names make you want to go see a movie? Like if you see somebody's name associated with a movie, what, what are some of those names that make you just go like, I got to go see this movie? You know, <laughs> I would probably give you a very long answer usually, but I would say just with how much content comes out nowadays, I don't get around to as many as I would like, you know, but uh, you're, we're talking like Denis Villeneuve is always going to be someone that is kind of a must-see whenever he does something. Uh, Taika, I always check out his stuff um, of course i still have a lot of respect for you know scorsese so the it's really i think in a lot of ways will come down for me to the filmmaker um some actors i'll keep up with their stuff as much as i can but uh, i i think you you get more because the director has more control over the quality of the film it's probably more likely to be a good product when you're you're following somebody like that so that that's kind of what i do fair that actually is the exact uh response i was expecting so um thanks for uh leading me right into my next talking point oh you're Um, welcome i'm so (laughs) grateful (laughs) yeah uh so you're describing like you said you talked about um directors and actors potentially also being part of that yeah do you go see movies for visual uh, for visual effects directors? I think the closest I would come to even pretending I do that would probably be Roger Deakins. I absolutely do not like keep an eye on his upcoming releases to put them on my calendar as a must see. So no, I I do not. And even then, we're t- and, and no disc no no discounting his amazing work. He's a cinematographer right yeah yeah Yeah. i said yeah that's that's as close as i can get so right no so that's the cool thing if you go back if you go through and look through um his filmography for being uh part of the visual effects part of it and we're talking about this man mind you again i want to i'm going to tell you why he is the most important man for cinematic for our current uh cinema landscape has 17 credits to his name for visual effects and each one of them some good some not so good but that's it for producing credits he has 17 and some of those overlap with 
the special effects uh, stuff, his directing credit, his uh-huh. 10. And even then we're talking like early 1950s, 1940s. So not even the stuff he got really famous for. But this man would, you'd put his name on a movie he was doing. Uh-huh. And it would be special effects by Ray Harryhausen. And people would come to see it for that specific reason. And the whole experience of going to see a Ray Harryhausen film drove people to consistently come back and see his works, even though they came out so, uh, like I said, there's not that many of them in comparison to some other like very uh, well-known directors, well-known producers, well-known actors. He started with Mighty Joe in 1949 and his last uh, major uh, motion picture that he did uh, visual effects for was in 1981. And between that time, he did quite a few movies, quite a few very influential stuff. But it's just crazy to me to think that like this man did a few, a handful of movies, uh, you know, almost 20 movies over his entire span of work. But people that we know, I'm just going to list off some names here, Jesse. Let me know if you know who I'm talking about or have heard about these names before. Have credited him as being a true inspiration, and the reason that, uh, and one of the reasons they um, followed their passion for cinema. Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, Joe Dante, Tim Burton, uh, Nick Park, James Cameron, George Lucas, J.J. Abrams, Wes Anderson. Henry uh, uh, Sleek, I think this is how you pronounce it. Do, do any of those names ring a bell for you, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, those guys are okay, I guess, <laughs> you know. So. But sure, yeah. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> all of those men talk about how great this guy was, how much effort he put in, how much uh, his movies inspired them, how much they go back. When he did, uh, he did pass in 2013, some notable quotes around how much they impacted him. Um, uh, Edgar Wright uh, said, I loved every single frame of Ray, uh, Ray Harryhausen's work. He was the man who made me believe in monsters. Um, George Lucas said, without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely be no Star Wars. James Cameron said, I think all of us who are participating in the arts of science fiction and fantasy movies now feel that we've we're standing on the shoulder of a giant if not for ray collaboration to connect to dreams we wouldn't be where we are now so i mean this guy influenced most of the directors we look to to now (laughs) so we would not be getting an avatar sequel without this guy no and that's the crazy (laughs) thing so um watching these documentaries and i'll talk a little bit more about his stop motion in the movies he did stuff but i just really want to express how much he truly made our current landscape of cinema because of how much he did he uh there's lots and lots of documentaries about him lots uh some produced by himself some produced by his foundation and it struck me, and maybe just because I watched several of them, and it, it, like I said, I, I watched several of them right in a row, but in, th- I think out of three or four of them that I saw that were like produced by uh, either like the BBC or something else, James Cameron was in three of them. Produ- or the executive special effects artist for Star Wars, Terminator, a lot of those guys kept repeating and coming back. Um, several other directors, uh, Joe, uh, Dante came back two times. Uh, George Lucas was in, in one of them. Uh, JJ Abrams is one of them. Um, Peter Jackson was in one of them, uh, which was funny because it said Peter Jackson, it's like director of the Hobbit. I was just like, wow. Okay. Guys just uh, ignore all the other movies. Cool. Just yeah, the Hobbit. Why, why do they got to do them dirty like that? <laughs> um, 
I think Tim Burton was in one of them, if I remember correctly. That one was one I watched at the beginning. But like we're talking about massive directors sitting down to talk about one guy and several of them coming back to do several, several, ver- like several different interviews for different conversations. One just focused on one of his movies, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Um, one focused just on Clash of the Titans. One focused on his entire uh, filmography and his entire career. Like the fact that you got these guys, huge directors by our standards today, coming back and talking about this guy multiple different times should tell you again, past, you know, all their very nice things they said about his passing just kind of points again to this guy truly meant something to so many people and was able to just inspire the way that he was inspired by one movie. So I watched Jason and the Argonauts quite a bit when I was a kid. And to this day, I'm still floored in a lot of ways by what they were able to accomplish with the visuals, the various creatures, the monsters. It just doesn't seem like something that should have been possible in 1963, but there it was. And when you talk about all these big name directors and, you know, these okay guys that you've been, you know, mentioning, (laughs) I think of movies like, you know, uh, not just Star Wars, but you have, you know, Jurassic Park. The first one, the good one, um, ter- <clears throat> Terminator Two, you know, heavy, you know, heavily influential uh, visual movie, um, Lord of the Rings, not The Hobbit. <laughs> People who put that credit in front of <laughs> Peter Jackson's name. So I just think about all these things that would have been lost, or at the very least, not as successful or as innovative um if it hadn't been for this guy kind of paving the road or you know chopping down the trees that these guys built their dream houses with you know <laughs> yeah chopping down trees for his yeah i mean <laughs> that's that's not my best analogy but uh <laughs> no nah, i like it um it's it's yeah it's possible because this guy was there first and he you know he was the first one through the wall yeah and uh one thing to just kind of mention uh you're talking about like jurassic park in the first one uh steven spielberg uh even said at one point that he believes if ray had the technology to do what he was doing with jurassic park with cgi and even probably you know, now with, I, I want to say stop motion and stop motion is incorrect. Uh, the uh, freaking the dots on people, um, uh, CGI, CGI, uh, motion capture. Oh, uh, motion yeah. Capture. Duh. <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg saying, you know, I, I believe Ray would, you know, he, Ray came in and took a look at, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg invited him, and the visual effects, uh, they came in to invite him to take a look at what they were doing with CGI and showed him what they were doing and how it was working. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, he's like, I, I, he's like, I, I, I would have loved to play with that when I uh, was <laughs> was was working with my dinosaurs and stuff. And he. Another thing, too, if you have a chance, I would say take a look at some of his uh, interviews or uh, some of the you potentially take a look at some of the briefer um, documentaries on him. Uh, he is one of the nicest seeming gentlemen I've ever seen put to film. He's like I would describe as like the nicest uncle you've ever had in your life. Um, just incredibly pl- pleasant, uh, super friendly sounding uh very even um when you could tell he was getting on an age had very quick mind very good jokes uh and he was shown that cgi stuff and was just like yeah that's really cool uh i would have loved to do that and it's it, it's kind of sad that he wasn't able to really get to experience some of that stuff and see what he could do but like you were saying jesse it will circle back to actually talking about his 
actual things of work. Um, so he uh, did several movies, um, a lot around these creature type movies that was very big in the 1950s and the early 60s. And they at first did several ones. Um, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms uh, was actually predated. And this is a throwback to a very early episode, a very similar type topic where Michael was just yammering at Jesse and the audience about something. Um, but in 1953, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, essentially, tell me if you've heard this story before, Jesse. Mm-hmm. A monster, lizard type carnivore creature comes up from the ocean after being released by man and then rampages through a city, destroying, uh, killing people, and then is eventually uh, sent back and killed by uh, the man. And we question who really is the beast, man, or the monster itself. Does it sound like familiar to any other sort of other giant monster movie that we talked about previously? I is that not the synopsis for the movie Splash? <laughs> uh, no. Darn. <laughs> uh, that is the synopsis of the movie for pretty much Godzilla. Oh, good God! Yeah, right. Um. <laughs> So Godzilla came out uh, the next year um, and some people say, and this is where uh, when I pre I still stand by my previous statement. I think that the Godzilla movie uh, made it might've taken a little inspiration from this, but also has a very deeper message than uh, the beast from 20,000 fathoms and was done very differently. Uh, obviously a guy in a giant uh, rubber suit smashing uh, models in Godzilla where this one was Ray sitting in a um, studio by himself, slowly moving a clay figure uh, down a, a street and taking individual shots of uh, uh, individual frames uh, with that. But it came out a year before and has a very similar look. Um, also, there's a particular moment in uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms where a guy gets a cop is like shooting at a giant dinosaur, which is really dumb. Um, <laughs> but he's like shooting at it. And then he goes like, oh, no, I'm out of bullets. So let me just reload my gun right here where this giant monster is in front of me. And then the giant monster reaches down and grabs him and his legs are hanging out. And it's really cool because you, you see the monster come down. M mind you, this is a model comes down, bites the guy lifts him up off of the ground and then uh it cuts to a, like a different angle and you see it like flailing with this guy's legs in your mouth and it's it's really hard really hard to see like any sort of wonkiness or weirdness even back even with this movie that was made uh decades ago to see that slow motion and see the guy get lifted off the ground where it doesn't look like there was any sort of weird wires or weird cuts or weird like plates laying over each other. It's impressive the quality and effort and time that he was able to put into some of his very first movies that got this like image and look, which then it just keeps getting reutilized and reutilized and reutilized because you see that same exact type of thing in Jurassic Park where the T-Rex comes down and grabs the guy on the toilet and lifts him up and then makes pretty much the same motion with the same like legs hanging out that you see in the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Yeah. That's where Spielberg got that one. Yeah. So 20,000 fathoms, it's one of his very first ones. Uh, there's some great scenes where you see it walking through the city and, uh, really that's where you really start seeing the character that Ray puts into his monsters, a really big tell. If you're watching a Ray, if you're curious, if you're not sure if you're watching a Ray Harryhausen, uh, monster movie, watch the tales, but watch the tales because they have a very particular tell. He likes making these very fluid, uh, motions where they would roll out and, uh, kind of make like this crescent and then slowly roll out and then kind of flick up. 
at the end. And if you watch a lot of his stuff, they, he just he reuses that same image, that same motion again and again. And it's just such a signature on a fine piece. So some of the other ones that are really great, I would recommend. Um, and kind of I'll give some synopsis of some of the other ones. Uh, 20 million miles to the Earth. Uh, this is one where an alien creature comes back to earth and then slowly it just slowly grows and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger until he's like the size of uh, ancient roman architecture and is like slamming through it also the reason that he is uh <laughs> in rome is because ray wanted to take a trip to italy so they he was like we're gonna set this in rome opposed to where i originally thought of it was which was in chicago um <laughs> <laughs> and that was because he wanted to take a Rome to or a trip to Rome. Um, I don't blame the guy. Yeah. yeah. Good excuse. And uh, the technique that Ray kind of developed with the beast from 20,000 fathoms and uh, the uh, 20 million miles to the earth uh, was something he called uh, dino uh, dynamation, um, which Funnily enough, he actually got off of his car uh, dashboard. It said uh, uh, some sort of advertising that one of his cars had on it. And he was like, I really like the name Dyna. So he's like, I'm going to take it and make Dynamotion. And that's what he called his technique, um, which is just a great little antidote. When, he, when If you hear him tell it, it's just like kind of cute and fun. And back to that oh, good old uncle. Um, but 20 million miles to the Earth, the creature slowly gets bigger and bigger. And it's again that character. Whereas previous monster movies like this, you just they're a monster. They kill them. It's about the the good guys being the good guys and the bad guys being the bad guys. But in many of his movies, you start seeing these characters and you really do feel there's a heart and soul behind them. And in this, this just some it's just some animal who is brought here to Earth and it's not doesn't want to be here. It's different. Uh, people keep hurting it and keep being attacked and keep attacking it. And then it retaliates. It doesn't ever really attack people first. It's just trying to exist and it hates, it doesn't like where it is and people just keep attacking it. So it gets mad and it hits people and stuff. So it's kind of sad. It has a very King Kong, uh, King Kong feel at the end when it dies. You're like, Oh, sad, sad little monster. The, the Yermer died. How sad. Then a few years later, uh, Harryhausen did, which was probably one of the more famous ones. Uh, the Seven Voyages of Sinbad. And as we get into these, I will acknowledge there are some problematic, insensitive uh, depictions of people and races in some of these movies, uh, as I think he called them costume pictures in one of his uh, interviews. So I'm going to acknowledge that uh, if you do go back and watch them, just be aware of that as a thing. Um, but you're not really there for those types of things. You're there for the Ray Harryhausen live action or uh, stop motion stuff. So just ignore the unfortunate and very racist stereotypes sometimes that are put into some of these movies. Uh, so, yeah, that can happen. I was yeah. listening to the Stranger Things season four soundtrack earlier today, and I don't remember which song it was, but it was one of those 80 tunes that came on and kind of the same thing talking about various cultures and people i'm like yeah this probably isn't great but hey pop culture and scary monsters and D, &D that's, that's yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so um but this was the first uh first film that he did with the the that was in color um so you could actually start seeing a lot of the very cool uh stuff he was doing this is uh the very iconic uh, Cyclops um, scene, which is actually funnily enough referenced in a um, episode in Gravity Falls, an animation, an animated cartoon from Disney. Uh, they go and actually meet a Harry Clayston, uh, Clayston, Clayston, I think it is his last name, in the thing, and it's pretty much just Ray Harryhausen. Um, and he, in, in that, they make a joke in the in the cartoon. Um, where all of his clay creatures are actually alive and uh they're like i thought this was all stop motion and he's like what are you crazy some dude would just sit in a dark room and slowly move a model inch by inch and 
no, I brought them to life with black magic. Um, so it's kind of a joke to that. Uh, there's other things in this movie where there's a dragon creature uh, and the dragon, it has a bladder inside of it that he would uh, inflate and deflate to make it look like it's breathing. And again, anytime I'm talking about these motions, you have to remember that we're talking about a man who by himself sat there, inflated a bladder, uh, which is just, you know, a thing that holds air, and then took a picture, like moved some stuff around, inflated this bladder, took a picture. Okay, moved everything ever so slightly, slightly deflated that bladder, took a picture. Did it all again and again and again. And we're talking hours and hours, days, days, weeks, weeks, months, months, potentially even some years in some cases to do these motion uh, to do these movies and yeah. sometimes you would spend an, you spend an entire day doing this and you get like maybe three seconds of actual film time and you have to be so precise about this and this is why ray was credited for being so great is because he was able to he, he pretty much worked by himself there wasn't a lot of other people doing this with him which is kind of a divergence from uh, the stop motion that is nowadays because you have the ability to take pictures and look at them right away. Uh, a lot more people are able to work together and kind of put these motions into place. So Ray was doing this by himself for most, for the most part and was spending this time and just had the little bit of effort and had these particular tools of like mechanical, um, CNC machines and things like that, that he would like put at a certain point so he could tell where the skeleton's head was or um, where this monster was moving to. And he was able to keep that in mind as he was moving forward. So the Seven Voyages of Sinbad is a really great one. Then uh, some other really great ones was uh, The Mysterious Island actually has a, another interesting story in it. There's a giant, uh, it's based on a Jules Verne book. Uh, very different, very lost in adaptation on this one, but still very cool. Uh, these castaways um, get to uh, this island where there's a bunch of creatures and giant, like giant bees and giant lobster, or giant crabs, uh, some other giant monsters and things like that. And he, it is rumored and he he himself even said it, so I'm pretty sure it's true. They actually went and bought a crab like from a grocery store and then used the crab as part of the stop motion. So it was just like an actual living crab or a, was a living crab, uh, but like now a uh, dead animal and used it as the stop motion. And then after they were done with it, they had it for lunch, apparently, is what he said. So... Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing. Like this guy, just there's so many of these fun, interesting stories he has. Um, he's famous for also through all of these. Uh, we're you know talking Jason and the Argonauts, which uh, you mentioned, um, and that one is very famous for several reasons. Uh, some of them being the very famous uh, skeleton battle. Yep. Uh, with all the different skeletons, the seven different skeletons, the uh, Hydra and him moving each one of those heads of the Hydra, undulating, moving, swaying, all of it, keeping all of that in his mind as he's doing this. Uh, some of those animations, the uh, giant bronze statue, uh, Ta Talos, I think it is, if I remember correctly, Uh moving and a lot of people talk about like how he kind of like the there was actually reviews about it how he looked they were like uh reviewers at the time said he looked too bronze he looked he looked uh too much like a bronze statue so it didn't make sense while he was moving and harry Housen was like that's the point he's a mystical moving bronze statue that was what i was going for so thank you um <laughs> uh, and sounds like somebody with no imagination right uh so uh he would do he he did a lot of those uh movies uh really showcasing his capabilities uh and just consistently showcasing massive amounts of talent uh back and forth with all of the things he was doing and 
uh, Clash of the Titans being the last film he did. Uh, and that one is particularly interesting because admittedly, um, that's the one with the robotic bird in it. If you remember, Jess, I don't know if you've ever, have you seen Clash of the Titans, the 1984 version? <sighs> I don't know if I've ever seen the 80s version. I saw bits and pieces of the kind of crappy, more modern well, versions that came out. We won't, but... Yeah, with the, they, they stole quite a few things from the uh, the 81 and it's sad. It's sad when your uh, stop motion scorpions look more realistic in an eighties movie than they did in the updated version. But uh, yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a rabbit hole. We don't have time for Exactly. <laughs> so um, he did several scenes. He uh, did several very particular scenes in this. Uh, some of the ones that I would, if you were just take, wanted to see how skillful he was uh, the Gorgon, uh, Medusa scene is so intense and almost like a horror movie level of intensity with this creature and the hair moving and she's slowly crawling um, like it's the upper torso of a person, but the lower half is a snake and she's just slowly crawling. And again, you see the classic Harryhausen uh, tail movement um, moving back and forth. And so he really, uh, shined in so many of these different ways uh with going over these monsters and creating these uh visual effects it's just so impressive so cool um i just i consistently uh i i, I watch probably a harryhausen movie every year um at least two or three times and it just always it just cycles through and i just always think god there's just so gorgeous so much heart so much movement so much soul was put into these figures and it's just so impressive how he made them move how he did this because it wasn't with the technology we have today this was a man and a vision and a dream and in fact many directors hated him uh, while working for him because he needed particular shots he would need particular um framing because how else was he going to put talos and make talos the giant bronze statue look giant next to these humans if the camera wasn't exactly where he needed it to be and so he would actually get into he, he, uh, several directors um were like I, why am i even here you just have the special effects guy telling me exactly what the shots i want to do and it's because he had a vision for things um another really cool thing to look up is uh his inspiration sketches there's an entire book um called the art of ray harryhausen the man was a beautiful illustrator as well and you can see so many of these uh spectacular images come from his mind onto a piece of paper and then jump from that to the silver screen there's a classic one of a man with a scimitar fighting a skeleton as it falls with the back off a or falls backwards off of a spiral staircase and that is directly comes directly into one of his movies where you see that exact same image except that it's inside opposed to outside but he just knew what he wanted to see and then unfortunately consistently butted heads with um directors because he knew what he needed to shoot to get those specific images and so he just was a man of vision and because of him so many of our artists today you know major movie directors just are like yep we know that guy we love him um and he really just inspired all of us you see <sighs> why bother having a specialist especially with a vision who is a brilliant illustrator and then not listening to him when he suggests things or pushing back on that like that stuff like that just always baffles me to hear yeah and you know admittedly um i remember there was a a quote they were talking about how he um how directors would be like, oh, well, I want to move this camera like, like three feet back. Uh, and when they would say that, they, the, the, the individual made a joke about like, oh, well, you say that, but it's going to, it would take like a, 
a meeting of nations to get that agreed upon because Ray would have to agree to make it move because it, if, you, if it didn't work, it would mess up his entire shot. Um, so, yeah, that was that was kind of a big one. Also, uh, just a quick another thing, just because I know we're going a little bit long here. You might actually know an image from one of uh, Ray Harryhausen's movies, Jesse, without actually knowing it was a Ray Harryhausen movie. Do you know how I know this? Uh, Maybe. Jesse, we've watched the movie Shawshank Redemption Redemption together, haven't we? I'm pretty sure we did it in high school at your place. Yeah, it's high school, someone's house, somewhere along the way. Yeah. Um, Do you remember that very iconic poster that he has on the wall? uh, Raquel Welsh? Yes, I remember. Yeah, that very iconic poster in Pose comes from a Ray Harryhausen movie, One Million Years B.C. Well, there you go. Thanks, <laughs> Andy Dufresne. Yeah, thank you, Andy Dufresne, which is yeah. funny, too, because um, it's in that movie. It's uh, that poster. It's very iconic. Um, if you've ever seen the actual movie, again, Surprise, surprise. The only one reason to watch the movie is to watch Ray Harryhausen uh, do his thing. Um, he uh, the, the movie has like barely any dialogue in it. It's mostly them just saying their names and grunting because it's, again, one million B.C. So it's just caveman and stuff like that. But uh, the entire movie, except for one visual effect, which I don't know why they would do that, um, is all stop motion, except for the very first monster they interact with is a actual like lizard that they've like done a similar thing as the stop motion with plates and projection. And they put the, uh, the, the lizard in the movie as if it was an actual giant monster, which is weird. Cause why wouldn't you, you're already paying Ray to do this. Why wouldn't you just have him do it? But whatever. Yeah. Why do I that? digress? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so it's just, it, again, it's one of those things where it's, this guy truly gets should be wider known. Uh, I think his movies are still spectacularly captivating and interesting to watch and just see how he does, how he did these things. Um, that is actually, unfortunately many times, the only reason you would watch a Ray Harryhausen films, uh, quite a few of them, the acting is forgettable. The characters are uh, cardboard and the dialogue is, has, dismal as a british afternoon (laughs) um so i think that's one of the main things is to watch is specifically for the stop motion and the special effects that he was able to produce first of all i think your analogy now was better than the one i made earlier so kudos to you Um, (laughs) second of all yeah i I think maybe that's why I haven't seen more of these because as much as I do appreciate, you know, innovative visuals, especially those that, you know, have had a lasting effect on film as a whole, I, I struggle to, to sit through some of that stuff when things like that, other critical elements of the film are just not, anywhere close to the same level of quality like it, it it can be tough for me i mean i think it's it's tough for a lot of people and i understand why that i do understand why that is i maybe just because i'm such a special effects nerd that i'm like i'll su- i'll suffer through this terrible dialogue just for 30 more seconds of watching a uh, octopus <laughs> tear down the golden gate bridge i mean um, yeah so I think you just kind of have to be in the mood for something like that and not like great, maybe film as a whole, but I, yeah, I, I want to make it a point to see Jason and the Argonauts again, because it's been a while and I should probably check out some of these other ones as well. Cause I, I really don't think I've seen that many of them either as, as you're going down as uh, filmography. Yeah. It's there's, there's quite a few of them. It's really worth uh, taking a look at um clash of the titans sin uh sinbad in the eye of the tiger is kind of is okay in comparison the golden voyage of sinbad that one's a really solid one 
the Valley of Guan Guantig. I can't I can't remember how to pronounce that one. That one's actually an interesting one. It's like cowboys versus dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> and very King Kong-esque, but also uh, with a T-Rex. Uh, one million years BC. I mean, uh, uh, Raquel Welsh in that uh, skin bikini. Always a win, plus the stop motion. So definitely take a look at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that broke a man out of prison. So that that's worth something. Right. Um, Jason and the Argonauts, the Mysterious Island is pretty good. That one actually, the, actually, Jesse, if you're struggling with that one, I would actually suggest the Mysterious Island. Uh, the acting's pretty good in it. Um, the dialogue's pretty fun. There's, it's, it's got a little bit of a lighter tone to it. Um, so if you're struggling to get in, I'd say some, one of those is really good. Uh, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad is also a pretty good one. Um, the, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, uh, one of the earlier ones, is also, also all right. Uh, the Three Worlds of Gulliver, uh, that's another special, uh, special effects one that he did. Um, less stop motion in that one, but pretty solid. Um, and then, oh, it came from beneath the sea. That one is, uh, he's actually uncredited in that one technically, but he, did, he, he really wanted to do, this one's really great. I'm sorry. I'm, I know we're going long again, uh, but he really just wanted to, this is, this is why this guy's so cool. He wanted to make a movie where, uh, an octopus tore down the Golden Gate Bridge. That was it. That's all he wanted to do. So he uh, had quite a few friends in the industry that he worked with. Um, and he told, like, this is what we want to do and wrote a story and then um, got the screenplay to somebody. And then they made a movie around a uh, octopus destroying things. And he was able to make this octopus destroy the Golden Gate Bridge. It wasn't he actually jokes in several uh, interviews because they, they, they didn't have enough money, so they couldn't actually make it an octopus. It was a uh, uh, sixtopus because it only had six <laughs> tentacles. <laughs> well, technicalities, right? Right. But that one, I, if, you, if you're looking for a, a solid movie, don't. Not, not that one. Um, not that one. Got not it. that one. But you get to, I mean, just watch the clip of it tearing down the Golden Gate Bridge. But there's quite a few pretty solid movies he did in here that were just again it's impressive a man who did you know was in the industry for 30 uh, 30 plus years uh kind of just working through a bunch of this stuff and really was able to inspire entire generations and second generations of uh directors and artists to really start following their passions and give us so many of the movies we've seen today Yeah, I mean, just based on what we've talked about here, I mean, it, it would look a lot different, that's for sure. Yeah, and I know stop motion is a very visual media, so it's hard for me to, like, describe how, like, truly passionate and just awe-inspiring this man is. So, like I recommended Jesse, there's some really great movies out there that he did. Go watch them. Or if you don't have time to watch a movie or don't like watching movies, I don't know why you'd be listening to us if you did. But there's also some documentaries out about him where he talks about these things. They're on YouTube. They're free. Go take a look at them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if it's something you're interested in, even if I'd say you're an aspiring filmmaker, like you should probably know who this is and what he's known for because that's going to be important. Uh, later down the line yeah it's, Ma imagine meeting like george lucas and you tell him you don't know who this guy is and he probably just like <laughs> i'm just imagining him rolling his eyes real hard at you oh yeah i could imagine many of these many of these directors being just like well you want to be an you, you want to be a director and you don't know who this gentleman is like you need to go back and watch some of this stuff He'll show you a thing or two about acting and he wasn't even on camera. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So more, you know, more, you know, um, well, thank you, Jesse, for, uh, letting me talk and ramble at you. 
um, for something and someone that I truly believe is very important uh, to the filmmaking history of our world. So I appreciate it. Yeah, man, of course. I, as I said at the beginning, I did not recognize this guy's name and I didn't look into it beforehand. So luckily I'm not an aspiring filmmaker. So that's my loophole. But uh, after talking about him, yeah, I, I, I can definitely feel the effects of you know his influence and Jason and the Argonauts, man. That's all I got to say. Yeah, it's crazy. And sorry, it's just more and more. Just, I think there's just so many, so much to talk about. Uh, one more thing, I promise, just one more. Um, you talk about Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, one of the things that was really interesting about how we did a lot of that stuff with those fight scenes with swords uh, and these characters fighting skeletons that weren't there most of the time. Yeah. Um, they did have sometimes where they would do a choreographed fight scene with uh, another person there. Um, and he would, they would film that first and then they would go back and do the stop motion stuff. If you watch those scenes, when you're going back and watching Jason, I want you to watch when their swords connect because when he did it, he could have just had them stick up the sword in the stop motion and then just have the actor hit like, you know, stick up the sword where there's the actor's sword would have stopped in the frame. Okay. He doesn't just do that. He takes it and actually has the skeletons move their arms as if the sword was actually impacting them in the frame. So that's like a little thing to look at too. Well, when you go back and watch Jason and the Argonauts. Will do. Also, when the skeleton warriors pop up for the first time and they're just kind of standing there and then they go, ah, and then they chase after the heroes. That part always scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. So. I mean, fair. That's what he was going for. <laughs> yeah. Mission accomplished. You got me good. Perfect. Well, thank you, Jesse. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. Uh, just because we don't want to go too long. Um, and I'll keep coming up with one more things if we go for much longer. So uh, thank you so much for listening to Hit The Real, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. We try to get this podcast out weekly, uh, usually on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays. Depends on how much I'm doing and uh, how busy I get. Um, if I got something wrong, because it was mostly me doing talk in this episode, uh, so if I got something wrong, please feel free to let me know uh, at hittherealpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's hittherealpodcast at gmail.com. Or, hey, if you want to geek out about Ray Harryhausen with me or set up a, 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 a marathon so we can force Jesse to watch a bunch of these, we'll also take those emails as well. Um, and uh, feel free to take a look at our Patreon in the description of the episode. And like always, hey... Keep it real.